theyeshiva.net. Since we're within 30 days before Pesach, the Gemara says in Psachim, Masachis Psachim, Davav, that 30 days before the holiday, we begin to learn the halachas, the themes and the laws of the Chag. So therefore today we're going to begin a Maimer, a Hasidic discourse of the Baal Hatanya of the Alter Rebbe on Pesach. It begins with a Pesach, Sheishes Yomim Teichel Matzes, Ubayim Ashvi Yatzeres Lashem Alekecha. It begins with a Pesach in Parshas Re'eh. A few words about this Maimer that we're about to begin. I know that... Uh, one of you purchased just a few days ago the Sefer Torah Eir and Lekutah Torah by the Balatanya, so Mazel Tov, Rebaran, and Be'ezer Hashem will still be learning that. But today we're actually going to learn a Maimer from another Sefer of the Balatanya known as the Siddur. This is the Siddur. Just a little historical background. The Balatanya had three sons. One of his sons was Rabbeinu Doiv Ber, Rabbi Doiv Ber, who became his successor, the second Chabad Rebbe, known as the Mittler Rebbe, the Miller Rebbe, Mid, Middle, Middle Rebbe, after his father's passing on the 24th of Tevis, Tovkov Ayin Gimel, 1812, his son, Rabbeinu Doiv Ber, succeeded him as the second Rebbe of Chabad. He lived much shorter than his father, he passed away, in the year Tovkov Peches, which means 1827, and he was succeeded by his son-in-law, who was also a grandson of the Balatanya, known as the Tzemach Tzedek, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch. The Mittler Rebbe was obviously a son and a very close disciple of his father, the Balatanya, and he would transcribe most of his discourses. Most of the Maimarim that his father, the Alter Rebbe, would say on Shabbos, on holidays, in the middle of the week, were transcribed also by the Mittler Rebbe. A year after his father's passing, which means Tavkofay in Dalet, 1814, he published what's called Siddur im Divrei Elekim Chaim, Siddur im Dach, which means a Siddur with divine living words, divine living explanation. And basically, this Siddur has a few lines of the prayer, and it's surrounded all around by the texts of the explanations on the davening that he heard from his father. In other words, over the years, Dalte Rebbe said so many maimarim on the different pieces of davening, whether it's the beginning of davening, the brachas and the karbonas, or psuki de zimra, or the blessings of Shema, or the Shema itself, or Shmenes, or other parts of davening. So the Mittler Rebbe published, a year after his father's passing, a Siddur. This Siddur contained two unique things. First of all, it was the Nusach of the Alter Rebbe. You know, the Alter Rebbe wrote a Nusach for davening. He had in front of him 60 different versions of davening. 60, 60. We know two, three, four, you know, Ashkenaz, Svart. Maybe you know another few. But he had 60 Nuschayas. And what he tried to do was select and create the Nusach that would be perfect, both from a linguistic and grammatical point of view, and also from a Kabbalistic, mystical, and spiritual point of view. And this became known as the Nusach of the Balatanya, or the Nusach of Chabad, which is based on the Nusach of the Arizal. 
But this was Alter Rebbe's text of davening that he wrote from beginning to end. And that included for the whole year. In other words, every day, Shachos, Menchemayrev, Shabbos, Yom Tif, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Haggadah, everything. That all was published still in his lifetime. In his lifetime, before, 10 years before he passed away. But after his lifetime, the Mittler Rebbe published his Siddur, but this time it came with an explanation. Meaning, around every piece, sometimes it's a very thick book. Today they already published it in two books. There's a few lines on the top, and then around and around you have the Maimorim, the explanations of the Alter Rebbe on that piece of Davenik. And it's divided into sections. There's a section of Shachras, and Mincha, and Mayrim, and Shabbos, and Yom Tif, and Pesach, and Sukkot, and Halal, etc. And almost every section has long Maimorim that the Mittler Rebbe wrote that he heard from his father. This Maimer that we're going to begin learning today, Be'ezir Hashem, is from that Siddur. It's a maimer that the Alter Rebbe said on the seventh day of Pesach, Tov Kov Samach Dalad. means 1804. So that's how many years ago? That's 217 years ago. Alter Rebbe was then living in a city in Belarus called Liadi. Liadi, most of his life he lived in Liazhna. But after his second arrest in 1801, in 1800, he relocated from Liazhna to Liadi where he lived almost till the end of his life, until he escaped in 1812. He was escaping Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon invaded Russia in the year of summer 1812, June 1812, and he escaped before Elul, and he passed away in Ukraine, where he's buried. In the winter of 1812, December 1812, So Tovkov Samach Dalet, on the seventh day of Pesach, the Alter Rebbe said a Maimer, obviously about Pesach, this is the Maimer that we begin learning today. As was often the case, he would say a Maimer, and then often later, he would say a second Maimer, which was an explanation on the first. Sometimes he would even give another explanation to the explanation. This was called the beer. This Maimer is an example of such a Maimer. On Shri Shal Pesach, he said the first Maimer, and then later, maybe that night or maybe the next day, he said a whole explanation on the Maimer, where he elaborates and expounds and explains further and shows the references and how he got there and the methodology of it, the methodology of his thought. That's what usually the explanations were. He showed the foundations and how he developed ideas. That was said after the first Maimer and that the Mittler Rebbe also wrote down and he printed it at the end of this Maimer. And then the Alter Rebbe said a second beer, a second explanation, which he actually said on the night of Isruchak, which means Mitzah Yamtiv. He said a second explanation that he also printed here. So when you, if, at the end of this Mimer, you see there's a whole explanation to the Mimer. It's Mimer 2, and then there's Mimer 3, which is an explanation on the explanation. We're going to begin with the original Mimer, which begins with a Pasuk in Parshas as Usually the Mimerim would begin with a Pasuk, with a verse, and that was like the starting point from which the Mimer would develop and then grow into the themes that uh, the Maimer deals with and discusses. So it, sometimes it begins with a Pasuk, sometimes it begins with a Maimer Chazal, sometimes it just begins to understand a certain concept, but usually in most cases it begins with a Pasuk. Now, Torah, Eir, and Lakuta Torah, of course, are also my modern of the Alter Rebbe. Those are my modern that were mostly written by his brother, the Alter Rebbe's brother, known as the Maharil, Mareinu Harav Rebbe Yehuda Leib. Yehuda Leib, who wrote a sefer called Sheiris Yehuda, and he he would also transcribe his brother's discourses. And of course, 
his discourses, and I mentioned numerous times, are primarily the ones that create Torah Er and Lakut Torah, which also has a whole section on Pesach in Parshas Tzav. And we have learned in the past in Lakut Torah, Parshas Tzav, various Maimarim on Pesach. Especially, I'm going to encourage the Maimer Sheishes Yamim in Lakut Torah. Today, we're also learning Sheishes Yamim, but there's more than one Sheishes Yamim. So there's a Sheishes Yamim in Lakut Torah that you could find in the. Lakuta Torah section on theyeshiva.net. If you go to theyeshiva.net and you go to uh, Torah, you'll see Lakuta Torah. And if you go to Pesach, you'll see all the Maimarim that we did previous years for Pesach. We did Sheish Yamim and Lakuta Torah. We did Matzazu Shano Eichlam Al in Lakuta Torah. We did Hayamra Vayanois in Halal also in Lakuta Torah. Last year we did. Uh, Matzazu Tofresh Ayin Beis from the Rebbe Rashab. You remember the Evet Knaini, the Evet Ivri, the Amevriya, right? At length, both halachically and spiritually, what that means. So I will encourage you, since these are the weeks before Pesach, to really prepare for Pesach internally, not just externally, to take time and learn through some of these Maimarim to the best of your ability, review them. So comes Pesach, even before Pesach, these Maimonim are always, they're always applicable, but it, it infuses a, a new sophistication and depth and relevance, emotional relevance and psychological relevance and spiritual relevance. All of these concepts, so they're not just archaic and ancient. Okay, so today we begin, as I said, the new Maimer. Let's start right away. Pasuk says in Parshas Re'eh, six days you should eat matzahs. And on the seventh day is a day of atzeres. It's a day when you stop working, when you contain yourself. Atzeres means containment. The word atzeres even today in Hebrew is a gathering. When you have a gathering of people, you contain them. You bring them together to one space. And they're in a confined space. So the seventh day is a day of containment, which means it's a day of gathering, and it's a day when we abstain from work. We don't just scatter and everybody does their own thing. It's a day when you're contained, you're home, you're in shul, you're with the community. Now, the anomaly here, we all know, is you should eat matzah six days. One second. In Parshish Boy, Moshe Rabbeinu told us, Shivas Yomim Teichel Matzahs. You should eat matzahs for seven days. And on the seventh day is a holiday. We know there is a difference between the seventh day and the previous days because the previous days are called chalamayit. And the seventh day is a holiday when we don't do any work. Even not the chalamayit, we also don't do a lot of forms of work. But even those things that are permitted chalamayit, you don't do on yom hashvi. is the kadeh. Besides the cooking, which we could do on yom tif. But there is a unique change here that happens. In Parshish boy, when the Jews just left Egypt, Moshe Rabbeinu tells them, Shivas yomim toichel matzus v'ayim ha-shvi yichag l'ashem alakacha. Matzus yei ochil es shivas ha-yomim v'layir alakha chamez v'layir alakha osar b'chol gulecha v'gantel v'incha v'ayim ha-hulemer v'avur z'osa ha-shem li b'tzeisim ha-mitzray. And many of us say this Parsha every single day. Kadesh v'hayaki v'yacha, which are sections of Parshish boy. Over there he tells us clearly we should eat matzahs for seven days. Let's remember that initially Pesach is a seven-day holiday. It's not an eight-day holiday, only in the diaspora. Because of Sveik because they were not sure when the holiday began, they would celebrate an extra day just in case Pesach started a day early or a day late. So till today, whoever lives 
in places that were more distant from Jerusalem during the days when they would establish the new month based on the witnesses, we still celebrate Pesach for eight days, Shavuos two days, and Sukkot also an extra day, a ninth day. However, initially Pesach is only seven days. Granted, as they do in Eretz Yisrael, there's the first day of the holiday, and then there's the last day of the holiday, which is the seventh day, Acharon Shal Pesach, and you have the intermediary days, Chalamaya days. But what's this anomaly, Sheishis Yamim versus Shivas Yamim? This is a discussion in Gemara and Masech Psachim all the way at the end. Those who are learning now Masech Psachim and are soon going to finish before Pesach. What a beautiful, uh, I don't want to say coincidence, I don't think it's a coincidence. What a beautiful, uh, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What a great... Uh, uh, in Judaism they call it Hashkacha Pratis. Okay, what a great Hashkacha Pratis, very good. <laughs> So uh, those who are learning Daf Yomi are finishing Masech Pesachim literally a few days before Pesach. We had a schus to learn Arve Pesachim, the last parak of Pesachim last year, um, before Pesach, and you can you can watch all those shirim of, of the last last chapter of Pesachim also on the website on the yeshiva.net. So on Daf Kuf Chaf Amar Aleph, which is literally the second to the last page before uh, the end of Masech Pesachim. The Gemara explains this, and I want to I want to clarify because this is something that people often gloss over and they misunderstand, and this is really the basis of this mime. So let's see what he says in the mime. The words of our sages are known and it's also in Mechilta and in Rashi and in Teres Kayanim. You'll see in footnote three they did a wonderful job here with the footnotes referencing all the words of the Alter Rebbe. So our sages say, Mashvi Rishus Afshisha Rishus. Just as the seventh day is a voluntary experience, the six days are also voluntary. Only the first night is obligatory. The Gemara says something very interesting. There is a principle, and this is known as the eighth principle from the 13 principles with which we interpret Torah. Every morning before davening, we say, Rabbi Yishmael Oimer Bishloish Esrei Midas Atarni Rabbi Shmuel says that there are 13 principles which were given to us through which we can expound Torah. These are the 13 ways of interpreting Torah, the 13 principles that you have to know. They are the formula, if you wish, or the methodology that Moses gave the Jewish people in order for them to be able to interpret and expound and explain and elucidate Torah throughout all of history, because whenever you have a document, especially if the document is short, by definition it's cryptic, it can't include every single situation and all circumstances that will ever come up throughout Jewish history. So for this we have the Midas Shatayr and the various formulas which the sages throughout the generations have always used in order to be able to know how to explain Torah and how to apply situations how to apply the laws of Torah to each various situations. One of them, it's the eighth one, we say it every single morning, and those of you who Davin said it this morning, or you'll say it soon. And I want you to, from today on, I want you to remember this, so that when you say it in the morning, when you say it in the morning, you'll understand. Because most people go through the 13 principles, and it's like, okay, you know, it's something else to say. Right? 
ויוצא מן הכלל ללמד, לא ללמד על עצמו יוצא, אלא ללמד על הכלל כולו יוצא. What's this principle? If something was part of a klal, if Torah had a principle, a general statement that included a lot of details, a klal means a general statement or a general principle like a klal, a klal Yisrael, and it includes many details. If something was part of that umbrella, that unit, and then suddenly, yotzam in the Torah extricates it from the klal, specifies it and takes it out of the general collective, don't think it only went out for itself. It wasn't extricated from the klal just to teach us something about itself. Rather, it's here to enlighten us and inform us about the entire klal. In other words, if this, I'll soon explain what that means. If this detail was never in the klal, it was just never in the klal, it was always distinct, fun. So it's distinct. But if it was once once upon a time, it was part of the klal. It was part of a larger unit of other items. And then the Torah removes it. What's going on here? If you want it removed, why do you put it in? Uh, you put it in and then you removed it because you become a teacher for all of your colleagues who are in the klal. What, what do I mean? This sounds so abstract, and it is. But here is the classic example. What's the status of matzah? After the Seder. The night of Pesach, the Torah clearly says, you have to eat matzah the night of Pesach, 14 Nisan at night, al matzah You eat it together with matzah, you eat it together with mar. It's an obligation that is explicit and clear in the Torah that the night of Pesach, I'm obligated to eat matzah together with my... I'm obligated to eat matzah, to eat, to eat matzah together with the carbon Pesach, together with mar. Even after the Beis HaMikdush is destroyed when there's no carbon Pesach, Rav says, and that's the halacha over there in the Gemara, that there's an obligation to eat matzah, because the Torah says, Ba'erev toichlu matzah. The night of Pesach, you have to eat matzah. Got it. But what about the first day of Pesach? What about the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day? Am I obligated to eat matzah? Well, it says, Shivas yomam toichlu matzah. Yeah, it says seven days to eat matzah. Seven days is seven days. doesn't only say the first night. But wait. That's the klal. Suddenly in Parshish Re'e, the seventh day was taken out of the klal. Because in Parshish Re'e it says, only six days you should eat matzahs. What happened to the seventh day? He was expelled. We threw him out of the group. He's not part of the clique anymore. You hear about him? Sheish is very geshmak. Sheish is yomim, not shivas yomim. So the seventh day was thrown out of the klal. Hoya beklal, it used to be part of the chevra. The seventh day used to be part of the clique. In Parshas Boy, it says, Shivas Yamim. But in Parshas Rei, suddenly it says, Sheishas Yamim Toichel Matzas. So the seventh day was expelled from the group. He is now self-contained. I don't want to say orphaned. He's not orphaned, but he's on his own. But one second, you're contradicting yourself. If you believe that only the six day first say six days of Pesach you have to eat matzah, not the seventh day, why are you confusing me, Moshe Rabbeinu? Why in Parshas Boy do you tell me seven days, and in Parshas Re'eh say six days? Why are you doing this? Just say six days consistently. Ah, because initially the seventh day was part of the klal, and then the seventh day was taken out of the klal. Here comes the eighth principle of Rabbi Yishmael. 
כל דבר שהיה בכלל, ויוצא מן הכלל, לא ללמד על עצמו יוצא, אלא ללמד על הכלל כולו יוצא. If you used to be in the klal, and then you were taken out of the klal, and you were given unique, unique, a unique status, and a unique laws, they weren't only given to you, for you yourself. Because if they were given only to you, for you yourself, why were you once part of the klal? You should have never been part of the klal. You're different. This means that these laws were given for the whole klal, for all your friends. All your friends back there in the clown, you redefine them. This is the classic situation. What does the Torah take out of the clown, the seventh day? And what does it teach me? That there's no obligation to eat matzah on the seventh day. It says, Sheishas Yomim. That means on the seventh day, I don't have to eat matzah. I'm not allowed to eat chametz. If I want to eat bread, if I want to eat carbs, I have to eat matzah. But I don't, I don't have an obligation to eat matzah. You can eat meat, you can eat chicken, you can eat vegetables, you can eat fruit. Even though, because there are many opinions that hold that Yom Tif, you don't need Lechem Mishnah. So you don't even need, you don't even need Matzah. Even those who hold you need Lechem Mishnah, you certainly don't need Lechem Oini. You certainly don't need that Matzah that we have at the night of the Seder, which is only flour and water called poor man's bread. You don't need that. Even if you hold that there's a chi of Lechem Mishnah, which is itself debatable. So therefore, you don't have to eat the matzah of the first night every day of Pesach. And certainly Chalamayid, you don't have to wash. So the seventh day, which is not Chalamayid, we see clearly there's no obligation to eat matzah. Comes the Gemara and says, that teaches me for the whole klal, that all the six days, there's also no obligation to eat matzah. Mashvirishus. Just as the seventh day it's voluntary, the first six days it's also voluntary. Besides the first night, because over there the Torah explicitly comes and says that the first night is unique and the first night is an obligation to eat matzah at the Seder, which is what we do till this very day. Not everybody eats matzah all Pesach. In fact, there were those who actually didn't eat matzah all Pesach. I knew, I know Jews and I knew Jews because they were very afraid of chametz because the easiest thing to become chametz, of course, is matzah, right? But, uh, but okay, that's a separate discussion. So they actually didn't eat matzah. Besides, had to say that they had to eat. Afterwards, they wouldn't. But the point is, it's not an obligation. That's the concept that we see here. And that's what the Gemara says, that um, we learn from here that Shvi is Rishus, and therefore Sheishis Yamim is also Rishus. Now, it's a little bit of a hard concept. To it's hard, yeah, yeah. And it's unfortunate. I know it's hard because people learn it's the... Not so hard, but it's not so hard. It's not really hard, but the problem is the first time it's explained to people, it's often not explained clearly to children or young adults. So it becomes... There's a memory in your brain that this I'll never understand. It's like I told you once about the laws of purity and impurity, that the first time most kids learn it, they're nine years old, and it's not explained properly, and forever they give up. I will never understand. Tuma and Tara. You remember when we learned Reb Chanina's Gana Kayanim and Psachim? The same thing with the Beis Hamikdash, how the Beis Hamikdash looked, all the vessels and the sizes and the measurements. It's like, okay, this is beyond me. So this is just one of those examples. Everyone says this every morning. Now, so this is a, it's a very fascinating principle. Now you might ask, why can't the Torah just be clear about this? Just write. <laughs> you could eat matzah for seven days. And certainly if you want to eat bread, you got to eat matzah. You're not allowed to eat chametz. But there's no obligation to eat matzah for seven days. An obligation to eat matzah only the first night of Pesach. Nobody eats matzah seven days. You don't have to. No, because Pesach is only two or three days. 
well, the Seder is first night, and, and, and then, the, but the Seder is the first night. We have a Seder both nights, so we eat matzah obviously two nights, and all the other days of Pesach, it's voluntary, it's not obligatory. Now, Say, why doesn't the Torah say this clearly? Just say clearly that the chiyuv is to eat the, the eat the first night, and all the other days, if you want to eat bread, you have to eat matzah. But you don't have to eat matzah. You could just eat vegetables, or you could just juice. You can do celery juice. That's also fine, as long as it's not chametz. So that's not a question in nigla. Meaning, there's the way the Torah is structured, what it says explicitly, and what we derive through the various methodologies. But the truth is that if you go one step deeper, there's the element of nister here, which means the fact that this halacha is expressed through this mechanism, through this methodology, is extremely meticulous. That somehow it's the seventh day that has to teach us that that matzah is not obligatory. Torah doesn't say it about all the six days. Torah says it about the seventh day. And then from the seventh day we go back and we redefine the other six days to be in the same category. A similar example we just had, we have in, uh, in the beginning of Parshas Vayakel. The Torah says, You shouldn't ignite fire on Shabbos. The obvious question is, one second, you told me earlier you shouldn't do any work on Shabbos. We have a tradition that there's 39 types of labor. So why are you specifying not to ignite a fire on Shabbos? You should also say, don't plant on Shabbos. Don't plow on Shabbos. So that actually says, don't write on Shabbos, don't build on Shabbos, don't carry on Shabbos. So carrying on Shabbos, also there's a posik, at least according to many opinions, back in Parshas B'Shalach. But here in Vayakli only specifies igniting a fire. So the Gemara Rashi quotes the famous opinion, Havara lechalik yotzas. Havara was one of the 39, and the Torah takes it out of the klal. It was part of the klal of not to do malacha. The Torah extricates it from the klal, not to teach you only about lighting a fire, but to teach you about all the other malachas. Havara lechalik yotzas, to teach that every single malacha makes you liable in a separate way. So, for example, if a person forgets that uh, you're not allowed to write on Shabbos, or you're not allowed to cook on Shabbos, or you're not allowed to light a fire on Shabbos, or you're not allowed to plant on Shabbos, right? And I do it all, I'm liable for each malacha. In other words, they're not just part of one category malacha, but each one gets a separate status. So, from Havara, we learn it out for the other ones. Now, the question is why did Torah choose fire? Torah should have chosen another one. That's a great question. It's not a question in Nigla, it's a question in Nister. In Nigla, that's what the Torah does. But in Nister, the back-end program, it's a question. The Shalah, the Shalah answers the question. Just to give one example, the Shalah writes, because the first malacha of Hashem, we rest on Shabbos because God rested on Shabbos. What was the first malacha of Hashem? What's the first thing He created? If you go to Parshas Bereshis, Vayoymer Elikim, Yihi Er. God said, let there be light. In other words, the first thing God did was he created a fire. He created light. So light is the first, a beautiful shalom. So light is the first malacha of Hashem. So that's why when you have to, when you have to specify a malacha, he goes, Why is light the first malacha of Hashem? That's the first thing. The Torah says, It also represents the mission statement of the Jewish people. 
This is a famous sicha of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Parshas Bereshis, Chalukotis Yud, that the mission statement of life is to create light. So the first thing Hashem says, let there be light, because that is the first mission statement of what life is all about. You're here to create light and bring light into every situation. What is, how do we understand this here? I once taught you many, when we were learning Masech Psachim, we spoke, we, we learned Asvasemes, and we're soon going to see how that's so applicable to this Maimur. Kol Dover Shahaya Bechlal is not just a technical legalistic principle. It's also a cosmic spiritual principle. Because if you go through Genesis, the first chapters, till the beginning of Lech Lecha, there's just something called humanity, civilization. And the Jewish seed is part of civilization. Hoya Bechlal. But then God takes Avram Avinu out of the Klal. Out of the Klal. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. He tells Avram Avinu, I'm going to bless you. There was one Klal called humanity. Universal humanity. And that's the theme that's developed in Bereshus and in Noyach, all the themes, the tree of knowledge, the murder of Abel, the story of the tower, the corruption during the generation of the flood that destroys the, the destroys civilization. These are all messages for all of humanity. We call them the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noyach, the seven Noahide laws that apply to every single human being who is a child and a descendant of Noah. Suddenly in Lech Lecha, everything changes. The story becomes very specific. The late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in many of his works and essays and, and lectures, focused on this theme, how the Hebrew Bible dramatically makes a shift from a universal calling addressed to all of humanity, and suddenly it's lech lecha. Suddenly Avraham and his family is singled out which will become the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Avram was taken out of the cloud. Here is the catch. Listen to this. Don't think that the Jew was chosen in order to become a self-contained people. No. You're here to go back and illuminate all of humanity. So what's the first message God tells Abraham? May you become a source of blessing for all the nations of the world. Jewish chosenness is not you were part of a cloud and then you were taken out of the cloud and now you're self-contained and segregated and you don't care at all what's happening with the world. Let the whole world jump into the lake or the Hudson River or the Pacific if they want. You're here to go and redefine the whole cloud to change the whole world. To repair the whole world. Kishmak, huh? Exactly, exactly. Exactly, bring love, light, and hope to the whole world. That's the Jews' calling. True, over many years in exile, we were oppressed, and we were quarantined, and we were segregated, and we were just trying to fend for ourselves. And if somebody would just let us be ourselves and not bother us, it was already a great miracle. So who thought about changing the world? 
But we, today, God placed us in a time of history where we are called upon because we have the opportunity to actually reclaim our pristine and our innate calling, which is to transform the landscape of human civilization. The Rambam writes in Hilchus Malachim, a fascinating Rambam, that Moshe Rabbeinu gave a Jew the commandment from God that Jews are responsible to influence all of humanity to uphold and observe the seven Noahide laws, which are the basis of civilization. Rabbeinu Avadi of Sifarno, the 15th century great Italian physician and sage and commentator and mathematician, a real Renaissance man, this famous Sefarno who writes a commentary on Chumash and on Mishnayis, the Bartanura, Rabbeinu Avadya Bartanura. So Rabbeinu Avadya, I'm sorry, not Bartanura, Rabbeinu Avadya Sefarno, who wrote a commentary on the Chumash, Mishnayis is somebody else, Bartanura, also Italian, but there's somebody else. So the Sefarno writes, You should be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean to be a kingdom of princes? He says that your job is to be moral teachers to all of mankind, to uplift all of, all of humanity. So that's this principle and this is not a contradiction to the unique halachas and laws and guidelines that define the Jewish people. The exclusivity in terms of how the Jew lives, how the Jew behaves. On the contrary, Avram Avinu, the more he is rooted in his own true essence, the more he could become an inspiration to the whole world. So now, I hope this clarifies at least somewhat this eighth principle, so that from today, when you say in davening this eighth principle, you'll remember this point, my mission to change the whole klal, even though I was taken out of the klal. Right? So, if you want to put it in different words, it would be, if somebody grew up in a certain group, let's say a very poor demographic, or an underprivileged demographic, you're part of that klal, and then you're taken out of that klal, somehow you're plucked out. Don't become selfish. Don't forget where you came from. You weren't taken out just for yourself. You were part of them. You're always part of them. So why were you taken out? Why were you singled out? To be able to go back and help everybody from your cloud. That's why you were put there. Where does this all come from? This halacha. The seventh day of Pesach was part of the one unit. And then it was singled out in Parshish Matzas. Somehow the seventh day was excluded. Ooh, you weren't just excluded for yourself, taken out of the cloud, given a new status in halacha. You're part of the Sheshus Yamim. You're there to redefine the first six days. Okay, this is the actual principle. Now let's see inside. Asks the Alter Rebbe V'yashlohav, and we have to understand, Lama Hashvi Rishus. What is the underlying message here? Why is the seventh day voluntary? First, the Torah says you should eat matzah seven days. Then the Torah says you should only eat matzah six days, which means the seventh day has a unique status. And then the seventh day teaches us about the first six days. Why does the Torah do it this way? The Torah could have just said clearly that seven days outside of the first night, you don't have to eat matzah. You're not allowed to eat chavans, but you don't have to eat matzah. So you'll say, well, that's how the Torah teaches it to us. 
but it's meticulous. Everything in Torah is precise. This means that there's something about the seventh day which is somehow connected with the idea that matzah is not obligatory then. There's something about the seventh day that is unique. And that's why it's the seventh day that becomes the source of this law even for the first six days. We learn the first six days that you don't have to eat matzah from the seventh day. Mashvi rishus af sheishis yamim rishus. So now the question is, why is this? What is it about the seventh day that has this unique energy that this becomes the source for not being obligated to eat matzah on the seventh day? Also to understand, of course, in order to understand the answer to the first question, we have to get to a more general question. Why do we eat matzah? What's the concept behind eating matzah? Maybe if we can understand what eating matzah is, then we can understand why the first night we're obligated to eat matzah. The first six days, the Torah indicates that we're obligated to eat matzah. The seventh day, the Torah clearly says you're not obligated to eat matzah. And from the seventh day, you could go back and redefine the six days. Hine says the Alter Rebbe B'Zoyhar Amru, the Zoyhar, which is one of the most basic Kabbalistic texts, the Zoyar tells us in more than one place, and you have the references in footnote 4, where the Zoyar says, the matzah nikra michla demeim nusa. Matzah is called bread of faith. But what does this mean? How can a carb that you're consuming be called michla demeim nusa? It's made of flour. It's made of water. It's just a physical piece of food like any other piece of food. Are you going to call a cucumber a cucumber of faith? Or a piece of challah, challah faith? It reminds me of a joke. You remember the joke? They say that there was once uh, there was once a kid, you know, a Jewish kid. He ended up in uh, some uh, prep school with many non-Jewish friends. And uh, the teacher was going around and asking the children what they do before the meal. So most of the Christian children in the classroom were saying that we do a special prayer, special grace before the meal. You know, we, we, we put our hands together and we pray to, to the Lord, we pray to God before we're about to eat. So finally she turns to the Jewish kid, she says, David, how about you? Do you pray before you eat? And David says, no, 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 my, my mother is a great cook, there's no need for that. So what's the point, somebody, somebody once said, uh, there was a Jew who once said, in our home, we always, always ate leftovers, always. From the day I was born, and I could remember we eating leftovers, we still don't know what happened to the original, we still don't know what happened to the original meal. What is this idea that you take a piece of matzah and you say this is called bread of faith, food of faith, what does it mean? That explanation is Hainu Mashakasov. It's based on a Pasuk in Tehillim, Lamad Zion Gimel. Psalms chapter 37, verse 3. Where the psalmist says, Ure'eya Muna. David Amalek says, Betachbadinoi Vasetoiv Shchon Eretz Ure'eya Muna. Trust in God, do good, dwell in the land, and then come the last words, Ure'eya Muna. What does Ure'eya Muna mean? What does it mean? It's very, uh, it's cryptic, it's enigmatic. Re'ei comes from the word roya, which means shepherd. A shepherd is called a roya. Re'ei means to shepherd. Emunah is faith, loyalty. 
So some of the commentators say, like the Mitzudas David says, Re'ei Amuna, you should be shepherded by your faith, by your Amuna. But it's not so clear in the Pasuk, so the commentators have very different interpretations. So the Alter Rebbe says as follows, The meaning of this Pasuk is not only that it's faith that shepherds you, it actually means something else, the opposite. There is a shepherd who knows how to feed his flock with emuna. Just like a shepherd is responsible to take the flock out, to graze in the right postures, to get the right food, to be irrigated with the water, to be able to quench their thirst so they can have a good and normal and functional life as animals, as domesticated animals. So that's what a shepherd does. A shepherd takes the flock out to graze and eat. So he says, emuna. There's somebody who knows how to shepherd, how to feed, how to sustain, how to give to the people emuna. emuna. You should shepherd the people with emuna. What does this mean? This means... He says it doesn't only mean that Emuna is the shepherd, meaning you should be shepherded and fed by Emuna, but Ure'e Emuna, actually, the literal interpretation is you should feed them Emuna. <laughs> you should shepherd them with Emuna. You, sh- you should feed them the Emuna. What does this mean? What does it mean to feed people with Emuna? Explanation is the Yaduah, it's known, the Knesset Yisrael Nikre Emunah. Knesset Yisrael is called Emunah. Why? Emunah means faith. The gathering of Jewish souls called Al Shem Shehema Ma'aminem Bashem Echad. Because Jews, Knesset Yisrael has Emunah, they believe in God's oneness. V'chutva Emunah Zubinav Shaisam Be'irushem Ha'viseim Choyim Erkavah. And this emuna is entrenched, it's ingrained in their souls. It's an inheritance from their fathers all the way back to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, who were a Merkava. Merkava, the Medrash says, that Ha'avas Heinein Merkava, Merkava means a chariot. The definition of a chariot is that it's a, it's a conduit that allows the person, the rider, to ride on this chariot. For example, if you have a horse, and the horse pulls a wagon, so that horse and that wagon are called your Merkava. They don't have their own priorities, their own autonomous identity. You don't have to fight with them every time you get on to the, to the chariot. The definition of the horse and the chariot is, I am here to do what you want. I am here to bring you to the places you want to go. The Avais says the Medrash, Medrash Rabbah, Ha'avais heinin ha'merkava. The Avais were this ultimate Merkava. Their very identity was a conduit and a channel for the divine will and the divine energy. As a result of this, they created what you may call, if you wish, I'm just using this metaphorically, a genetic mutation, a spiritual genetic mutation, where this soul, this Amuna, becomes part of the Jewish identity. It's part of the Jewish gene. It's part of the Jewish soul. However, so this emuna, as we'll soon explain, is inherent into the, in the Jewish character. But in order to add to this emuna vitality and a flow of light, for this you need a shepherd to sustain them, or to be mafarnas this emuna, to bring this emuna into their bloodstream, 
Like when you eat, the food becomes part, part of your bloodstream. So you need a shepherd to take this amunah and to feed this amunah. Hazanam of Yisrael. says in Tehillim chapter 80, the shepherd of Israel. Listen to us. There's something called Roya Yisrael, somebody who shepherds the Jewish people. This doesn't mean the person who gives them physical food alone. Roya Yisrael, the one who shepherds them with amunah. He or she feeds them with amun. Commission is by Makamach has explained elsewhere. And one of the ways through which the Jewish people are fed, are given this amuna, even though it's part of them, but in order for it to be more vibrant and more alive and more conscious, so through eating matzah, amuna gets strengthened in the heart of the Jewish people. And that's why the Zayar calls it bread of faith. What does it mean, bread of faith? Most people would say, what does the Zayar mean? It's called bread of faith because symbolically, the Jews ate matzah when they left Egypt, which was based on faith. As the famous Pasuk says, I remember the grace of your youth, the love of our early marriage when you followed me into a desert, a land that's unsown. This took tremendous amuna, tremendous faith. Egypt was a place that was populated and it had the basic necessities for human life. And here the Jews are following an invisible God into a desert. This requires amuna. Do we have enough food? Do we have enough water? Who's going to take care of our children? That's what God says. I'll never remember, I'll never forget the faith of your youthfulness that you followed me, Be'eretz Lo'ezruah. And what did they take with them? They took with them that matzah that they just baked in Egypt. They had no time to let it rise because the Egyptians expelled them from the country. So that's why matzah represents the bread of faith. When we eat matzah, we remember that the Jewish people left Egypt with tremendous faith. But that's not connected to the actual matzah that I'm eating today. I'm eating matzah to remember, to symbolize the ancient matzah that they ate then, which was called bread of faith, because for them, this matzah represented a lot of faith. Because the matzah was made as matzah because they didn't have time to stay in Egypt. They, were, they left, and that was based on Amunah. But the truth is, the Zoyar says that the matzah itself is Michal de Meimnos. It's not just, it reminds us of the bread of faith. This matzah that you and I are going to eat on Pesach 2021, Pesach Tavshin Peyalov, just like the matzah you ate Tavshin Pei and Tavshin Ayintas, etc., from when you were born, this matzah is the bread of faith. Why? It was just made in a matzah bakery in Bar Park, or in Muncie, or in Los Angeles, or in B'nai Brak, in Yerushalayim, or in London. Or in Manchester. <laughs> Why is it called bread of faith? So that's what this mimer is going to explain. That actually, the amuna is there in every Jew. But what the matzah does is, amuna. It feeds you with amuna. <laughs> Eating the physical matzah actually strengthens the amuna in the heart of the Jew. When you're eating this matzah that you're eating, you're not just remembering bread of faith that they ate thousands of years ago. This itself is michel de This itself has within it an energy. Food becomes part of who we are. This itself has an energy that triggers and arouses and reveals that which lay embedded in the Jewish soul, as the Mimer will go on to explain. Very good carb. A faithful carb. <laughs> 
I don't know, all the carbs are good, but matzah is a good carb. Okay, questions. How is creating light the same as creating fire? Well, every fire produces light by definition, right? In fact, you know, today we take for granted, we have Thomas Edison, we had Thomas Edison, you know, you do the switch and you have light. But uh, in, in, in the days of yore, if you wanted light at night, right, you had the moon or you had to create, you had to light a candle. You had to light your lantern, you had to light a candle. That's how you got your light. Of course, fire also has other benefits besides the light. There's, of course, the warmth, the heat, the ability to cook. But, uh, but the first and foremost uh, product is that it gives us light. Next question. You mentioned, somebody asks, you mentioned that the Rebbe wrote his Nusach and he had 60 different versions. Is that the reason? But I see, this is a person says, but I see that his Nusach is much shorter. A lot of things that many other groups say, like Yitzris, on Yamim Tevim or Arba Parshis, he doesn't say there's no Vishamru Friday night. Baruch Hashem La'ilam Amin Va'amin by Mayriv, he doesn't say. Last Shabbos, it came as a surprise to my host that we didn't say certain Yitzris on Shabbos Shkalim, Shabbos Zacher, Shabbos Parah, Shabbos Achaydish. Um Why is that? Yeah, so the Alter Rebbe had his Shita based on his Halacha, what to say and what not to say. The example, for example, is by Mayriv, many people say, Baruch Hashem la'ilam amin va'amin. But, you know, halachically, it's a problem to stop, to interrupt after Hashkivenu. So the Alter Rebbe took it out. I think the Vilna also took it out. So, yeah, everything has a reason why, uh, why he, what he took out, what he left it. When were, for example, the Yotzros put into the Siddur? Where, where right, so, so these were, the, these Yotzros were all later additions in history. And Alter Rebbe went back very much to pristine, to the pristine text of the Siddur. Even Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, he took out an enormous amounts of poems that he that he felt were not uh, written based on uh, the ultimate knowledge of uh, Kabbalistic doctrines. He was very very selective which poems. Not that these poems are not good, Chas v'Shalom. They're amazing. They're beautiful, but he was extremely meticulous about what went into his Siddur and even how things are pronounced, even the pronunciation of words, because he was a, uh, uh, he was a real medactic, which means Alter Rebbe was a genius in grammar. Besides everything else, he was a genius in language and grammar. So he wanted the Siddur to be perfect on every level, not just spiritually, but also grammatically. So there's a lot of very interesting corrections that he made. He felt this was the the... The purified nusach—I don't know. They wouldn't know it's pure. Every nusach is pure, but this was like, so to speak, a very, very worked-out nusach. Question: You explained that klal is the rule and the prat is the exception. When there's an exception, it's there to redefine the whole rule, and the fact of an exception is not just for itself. But one examines the rationale for the exception being different from the klal, and then one can better understand the rationale for the klal. We drive 55 miles per hour. An ambulance can break his speed limit legally. From this we learn that 55 is to ensure safety, but the exception for the ambulance clarifies that saving a life overrides general safety. Okay? 
The world was given seven Noahide laws, but Avram was made an exception. Why do you even need the exception? That's a good question. But somehow, somehow, Avram Avinu was needed for that exception. In other words, if Avram Avinu was not chosen, the world ultimately would not be blessed in the way that Avram Avinu can bless the world. So that's why it was important to have Avram Avinu as a prat in order to go back and redefine the clown. Okay, my dear friends, I'm going to wish you all a beautiful and meaningful day. Tomorrow morning, we're going to have a woman's class at 9.45 a.m. That's Tuesday morning here on the yeshiva.net. We're also going to have Wednesday, 1 o'clock p.m., a class with the South African Jewish community that you can watch right here on theyeshiva.net. Wednesday evening, 10 o'clock, we're having our first of three series called Let's Talk About Dating. And it's going to be a special session for parents. What is their role when it comes to their children dating? That's going to be this Wednesday, March 10th. God willing, next week there's going to be a session for boys who are involved with dating. And then after Pesach for girls. So this is going to be a three a three-section series. It's going to be on Zoom. We're going to send out a message. We want it to be more interactive, so it's all going to be on Zoom. We're going to send out a message. So stay tuned Wednesday night, 10 o'clock p.m., for parents, mothers and fathers, with live questions and answers. I'm going to be there together with the marriage therapist here in Muncie, my dear friend, Reb Moshe Zev Lam, who's also going to be on, together with Asha Parnas, who does the Lakewood famous Zooms uh, every Sunday with Coach Menachem. So we're going to have, this is Wednesday, 10 in the evening, dating parents' advice for parents with live call-ins and unmute for everybody to ask any question they would like. Thursday morning, 7.30, Be'ezer Hashem, we will continue this mimer. I wish you all a beautiful, meaningful, and inspiring day. No, I learned I learned the Rashi yesterday in Vayakal because it was yesterday's the beginning of Vayakal, and it's also in the beginning of Psachim. It's in Psachim Daf Hey. We were learning from Psachim Daf Kuvchaf, and that piece about lighting a fire is the beginning of Psachim Daf Hey. Daf Hey Amid Bay is on the top. Um, so I have. So it's both in Psachim. I never really understood before this uh, cloud number eight, but now I understand it much better. Gavaldik. The seventh day teaches us that eating matzah on the seventh day and also the first six days outside of the first night of Pesach is voluntary, not obligatory. Meaning, I'm not allowed to eat chametz. That's the key. I don't have to eat matzah. I don't have to wash and eat matzah. I can eat vegetables. I can eat chicken. I can eat eggs. I can eat fish. I can eat potato starch. <laughs> I can eat kashala pesach foods. I don't have to eat matzah. If I want to wash and eat hamaytzi, I have to eat matzah because I'm not allowed to eat chametz. Right? But I don't have to eat matzah. Unlike the first night of Pesach, where I have to eat matzah, there's a chi of tira kazai's matzah. Now, what about the sec- What about yamtif? Isn't there a concept of eating a meal on yamtif, having lechem mishnah? So there are opinions that say only Shabbos, not Yom Tif. So the seventh day of Pesach, 
if it's not Shabbos, I don't have to have Lechem Mishnah. I don't have to have Matzah. But even those opinions who say that you do need Lechem Mishnah on Yom Tif, I don't need Lechem Oini. I don't need the same Matzah like the first night, which is flour and water. Because remember, they used to make Matzah mixed with fruit juice, like apple juice, or orange juice, flour and orange juice, or mango juice, right? Even though today we're careful with that. But there used to be that concept, so you can eat that matzah as well. There's no obligation the seventh day or the other six days to eat that matzah that we eat on the first night, which is purely flour and water with no other ingredients added. That's what we learn out from this. It's interesting because sourdough bread is the same thing. That you take flour and water, you mix it together, and if you leave it out long enough, like in a few days, then it starts, um, yeast starts growing in it. Uh, uh, sa'or. Sa'or. Sa'or starts growing in it. Sa'or is sourdough. Sa'or is yeast, sourdough. Natural yeast. Which is alive, this fungi. Yes. After 18 minutes, the fermenting process begins. I mean, there's a lot of a getter there because lamaisa, I don't, there's not too much yeast there by 18 minutes. I think the process begins. The process begins. Yeah. The enzymes. Enzymes yeah. are released, yeah. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.